will continue our study of Paul's letter to the Roman church. I don't want anyone in here to feel bad about coughing since I'm the biggest culprit. I'm, I think I'm well. And, uh, but do you know that the cough hangs on for another three weeks before it goes anywhere? So um, uh, if you have to cough, you go right ahead. I understand. <clears throat> um, let me begin like this. <clears throat> it has been my desire to try and cover a chapter a semester. And it's worked out real nicely. I mean, we've been at this three semesters, a year and a half, and we've covered three chapters. We now arrive at um, chapter four, and chapter four simply will not cooperate. Um, I have done some preliminary preparation, as <laughs> I, I think you hope I would have done, um, and it would um, will we'll not be. I mean, we'll be covering Romans chapter four in a whole lot less time than an entire semester. So I've um, I've done a little something. I'm I'm. Um, and I'm going to explain to you tonight what, what I'm doing, because uh, lo and behold, we may just find ourselves spending uh, a whole semester in Romans chapter 4, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But before I get to that, I want to give you just a brief overview, uh, a brief hint as to what is the theme of Romans chapter 4. Um, in the entirety of this chapter, Paul is simply confirming that argument that he has been maintaining through the first three chapters. That argument that justification is by grace through faith in Christ um, and that alone. The way he is making that argument in chapter 4 is somewhat different than in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He is maintaining the same theme, the same argument. But the way that he is going to do it in this chapter is through an appeal <coughs> to Abraham. That is, <clears throat> he is going to appeal to the experience of the father of the faith. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. What he is doing is, is in um, trying to convince this Jewish audience of his that what he is preaching by way of justification by faith alone is, um, is the truth, is what he's, he's going to do now is appeal to the experience of Abraham, and what Abraham basically does is provide for Paul a test case for the doctrine that he has been teaching in the first three chapters. If Paul can show that Abraham was justified by faith, <clears throat> then, all of his earlier um, assertions become irrefutable to a Jew. If the father of the faith was saved by justification by faith, then um, his, all of his argument is confirmed, and of course he has once again appealed to a Jewish audience in, an, in the way that they could best understand by appealing and defining uh, this hero of theirs, this patriarch, this father of the faith. Um, what he's going to do, that is, what Paul's going to do in chapter 4, is um, answer three questions, if not others. But number one, how was Abraham saved? When and why? 
And by so doing, by proving that Paul was saved, or that Abraham was saved, the way that he's been teaching, hopefully uh, confirm that in the minds and the hearts of his hearers. If you'll look at chapter 1 with me, <clears throat> Romans 1, uh, verse 2, where Paul says, uh, let me read verses 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Then look at chapter 3, verse 21, um, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Um, <clears throat> Paul is continuing to mention that what he is teaching is by no means new. It is something that has been taught in the law and the prophets, and now he's going to use the coup de grace. That is, Abraham, of course, being the one um, uh, they so... Uh, appreciated, and of course, if he can prove that what he's been teaching is true of Abraham, then he can establish that indeed he's, not, he's brought nothing new to the table. He's simply um, uh, rightly defining what they had misdefined. Now, in one sense, the purpose of, of the whole of chapter 4 is to make clear that what Paul was preaching was not only predicted in the Old Testament, but it has always been, but also that it was always God's way of saving men as it was in Abraham and as it is today. Um, that was one of the things that he would want his audience to understand, that um, what he was preaching was the way things were in the Old Testament as well as it is now, which, of course, the Jew did not understand. One of the interesting things that I think you're going to discover in chapter 4 is that... Um, there's not going to, you will not find one mention of anything about Abraham's sanctification, which I, which I think is an interesting, it really was an, uh, an observation made by Haldane, but um, no mention of his sanctification because Paul does not want to confuse in the mind of his hearers anything that Abraham did in terms of a work with what he's trying to demonstrate, that is, that justification is by faith without, apart from, works. So there's nothing about his sanctification. He, was, he would not want you to ever think that anything that Abraham did in any way contributed to his, um, to his stance and his being right before God. Now, guys, um, as I sat at my desk trying to figure um, and, to, and to, to peer better into the, uh, um, into the mind of the, and the heart of the Apostle Paul, um, what I want, what, one of the questions that came to my mind is, what does Paul have in mind? What, 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 is he, what are some of the reasons that Paul has in his mind that he includes a chapter like this? Chapter 4, uh, what is he trying to accomplish overall? Well, of course, the most obvious thing that he's trying to accomplish is um, his great desire to win his fellow Jews to Christ who had completely missed the message of the Old Testament. That, of course, is, is one of his constant themes. But there's, um, there's something else that I thought of that I, that, I, um, that I thought was also in the mind of this great apostle who was, as I, I mentioned in the past, the, the consummate pastor. Not only is it a concern of Paul's that, he, um, th that what he writes be useful to the Holy Spirit to see his fellow Jews saved. 
But it seems to me that another thing that Paul would like to accomplish by a chapter such as this, and in, in the book in its entirety, that is the book of Romans, is that he would like to make clear for the already converted Jew um, what was to be the kind of life that they were supposed to be living. Now, let me make this clear. I think it'll be clear. But You see, for a Jew who had already been born again, who was already saved, he was going to face a, a struggle that I think is very similar to a struggle that all of us face. Um, here's this Jew who is born from above and walks into the kingdom of God as a believer. Um, a saved man now. But, as you know, simply becoming a Christian does not eliminate a nature that we brought into the kingdom with us. <clears throat> we get a new nature added too, but we drag an old nature along with us. Now, what is it that a Jew had learned all of his life? What is it that Judaism had been taught all of their lives? Well, obviously, they had been taught that if they were ever going to be right with God, if they were ever going to please this God, if they were ever going to um, be close to this God, they were going to have to live uh, a certain lifestyle um, that would be meritorious. You know, of course, obeying the law was the forefront of their minds. Um, you even find Peter. Remember in the book of Galatians, in, in Galatians 2, Peter stumbles. Here's a man who understood a salvation by grace. But what happens to him? You find him in Galatia reverting to his old Judaistic ways and Paul having to come in and say, Peter, what are you doing? Remember, remember the essence of the book of the Galatians is that they were requiring these new converts to be circumcised? Do you, do you understand... <clears throat> They get converted, but they had been taught all of their lives that their standing with God was based on their performance. They have, in a certain way, discovered salvation is free apart from any meritorious work. But I had been taught all my life that merit really is important. And so what I'm suggesting is, is here's the Apostle Paul dealing with people as a, as a pastor, saying, I want to make sure that you guys understand that not only do you come into this kingdom without merit, but that you remain in this kingdom without merit, and your performance will not get you into heaven, nor will your performance uh, affect your standing with God in an ongoing experience and relationship with Him. Now, guys, that's the problem that I think is so similar to ours. Many of us, I became a Christian at age 22. I don't know how old you were when you became a Christian, but I had 22 years to learn that if I was ever going to be pleasing to God, I was going to have to be a good boy. And performance was important. Um, and you remember... You got the Sunday school attendance pins, then you got the little thing. 
those things were important, those kinds of meritorious deeds. And then I come into the, the household of faith discovering that salvation is a gift. It is not dependent upon my performance. But I had been trained for 22 years to think that performance was important. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I've been a Christian 30 years and I still struggle with a performance mentality. Do you not? Do you not still find yourself when, a, when things are difficult or things aren't particularly good trying to find a way to to twist the arm of God by, okay, well, I'll, I'll get back into church and I'll go to church more and I'll give them more money and I'll, I'll teach a Sunday school class and I'll need to straighten this out. And this, that we understand that salvation is by grace through faith and yet performance still clouds our whole understanding of who we are <coughs> in a relationship with God. That, I think, is in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he wrestles with how he can help new Christians at Rome. Now, <clears throat> acceptance on the basis of performance was how most of us began our lives. Acceptance on the basis of our performance. And I'm saying to you that that's a hard thing to shake. It's a hard thing to get away from. And we're, we're this bizarre combination, all of us, are this bizarre combination of people who on the one hand have found out that grace is free, that salvation is not by works, but on the other hand, existing in the, coexisting in the same body is a person that has been trained for decades to believe that everything, both now and in eternity, depends on my performance. <clears throat> that my, um, that even my sanctification is something that I'm going to have to grind out. Um, so what I'm suggesting is combined or conjoined in both of us is, is a person who understands grace but is trained to be a legalist. And we're constantly battling that throughout our Christian experience. I want to tell you three stories, and I hope the three of them will um, illustrate why I want to do what I want to do for the coming weeks. One of the stories is a, is a um, oh, I don't know, I just love the history of Martin Luther, and, and if, you, if, you like church, if you like history and you'd like, to be, you'd like to read a little church history, then read about Martin Luther. But you know the story about him... Um, and by the way, you know it was Martin Luther who began the Reformation by rediscovering justification by faith. You know that. Well, after he appeared at the Diet of Worms before the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, and that's where he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. You remember, you remember some of that? Well, when he left there, and it was on his way back to, his, to uh, Wittenberg, one of his supporters was, a, was a, uh, a prince by the name of Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise kidnapped Martin Luther 
and, and stole him away. In fact, uh, Luther at the time did not know that they were friends and took Luther to a castle in Wartburg to protect him because he had opposed the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. So Frederick the Wise kidnapped him and took him to Wartburg to hide him uh, from the forces that opposed him. While he was there in the, in the, um, the castle at Wartburg, he got word from his supporters that the peasants had begun to riot and pillage all of the churches in Wittenberg. <clears throat> because, um, in one sense, they had been set free by this new doctrine of justification by faith. And so, as they threw off all of this Roman Catholic um, bondage, they began to pillage and riot through all of the cathedrals there in, the, in, their, in their city. <coughs> Melanchthon writes to, Witten, to, um, to Luther, The dam has broken, I cannot stem the water. Well, Luther, having received this information, was so outraged that, against the advice of his friends and knowing that it was no longer possible to protect him, um, he left Wartburg and went back to Wittenberg and seized his pulpit in an effort to restore order and put the peasants back in their place because he felt responsible he felt responsible that through the preaching of forget all the indulgences, forget all the, the uh, <coughs> confessions, forget all that, you were saved by faith, uh, through, gra through, by grace through faith. He was furious that this doctrine of justification by faith had been abused to the point that the peasants had rioted. Now, um, he even went on to say, that these rioters had brought the gospel into disrepute, and I'm quoting, all the sorrow I have had is nothing compared to this. He felt like because what he had preached, it had produced this kind of response on the part of the people. They were once tyrannized through the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church. He set them free and they went over here and started pillaging churches. Okay? That's my first story. Keep that in mind. Here's my second story. I've always been, no, I shouldn't say always, but particularly in the last 15 years of my ministry, um, I'm, I've hoped that my emphasis has been one of grace. Um, that it has been one not to encourage you just to think that Christianity was a certain lifestyle to be lived, but that grace was to be our theme. Well, when I first came to Memphis, Bob and Joy will remember this. When I first came to Memphis, I worked at Central Church, as you know, doing singles. And I had been there for a couple of three years and just holding forth, uh, trying to you know, remain true to what I believed in terms of grace, grace, grace. And um, on one occasion, um, I came to church on a Sunday morning, 
and I was somewhat deluged with people wanting to tell me what had happened. Oh, I know what it was. I, I remember, I, I want to say it was Valentine's, but it might, have not, it might not have been Valentine's, but it was a party that we had had. We had had a party, uh, a singles party, and uh, that was sponsored by the singles ministry at Central Church, of which I was the head. And, uh, of course, you know, our parties ended at about 10 o'clock, um, like normal parties end. But, uh, you know, singles don't want to go home on, uh, let's call it Valentine's night. It could have been Christmas night for all I know, but it was some celebration. Um, they don't want to go home at 10 o'clock. So um, they regathered in a local bar that is now defunct. Um, it was called In Cahoots. Do you remember In Cahoots? Remember that bar? It was over on Poplar. Um, just east of Perkins. And they had gathered at In Cahoots, and a, a bunch of them. And it was, it was a nightmare. Um, I, I, I don't know this for sure. I don't know that there was drinking going on, but maybe, maybe there was. Uh, but I know this, that the manager of the, of the bar, uh, or of the establishment, finally came to them and said, you'll have to settle down or leave. Um, and um, in the course of the conversation, it was asked, where did you people come from? And the reply, of course, was, we just came from a singles party at Central Church. Which I had sponsored. <clears throat> well, at that point, I felt a little bit about, a little bit like Martin Luther. I was, I was enraged. I was furious that number one, that the gospel had been brought into disrepute by her behavior, but also that something that I may have preached or taught would have communicated to people that they had the license because they were saved by grace that they had the license to now go live such unrestrained lives, just like Martin Luther had done, <clears throat> just like it happened in Wittenberg. This, this fresh and glorious discovery that salvation is free and unmerited. The idea that it had been heard by the audience, that they could then make public spectacles of themselves by pillaging cathedrals or by having a drunken stupor in a local uh, bar was, was absolutely enraging to me. And, and I think, and, and very <coughs> hurtful. That's my second story. Let me tell you my third and final story. In the last 90 days, I have um, been in a conversation with a very dear man who um, was very upset with me. Very upset to the point of wanting to leave our fellowship. And, um, and, and I wanted to, of course, know why. And his reply was this that because of your emphasis on grace, you are undercutting the holiness of God. 
Now, that's not exactly a quote, but I'll say, because of your emphasis upon grace, that is a quote. Uh, I shouldn't say that. It's 98% of the quote. Because of your emphasis upon grace, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the holiness of God has been besmirched or, or changed or undercut, or et cetera, et cetera. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that I, for one second, take that casually? Is it possible that my preaching of grace is undercutting? I mean, um, did I did I produce a drunken piece of revelry at in cahoots? Did Luther create pillaging and rioting in Wittenberg because of his preaching of grace? <coughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, if, if we did, that is, me and Martin Luther, then we preached it wrongly. Or, perhaps you heard it wrongly. I've, I've taught this, I, I've taught it a, a, a dozen times, if not more. But if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's also found um, in um, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? <coughs> Shall we throw off all shackles now that that we that we're under grace and let's? Do you see what do you see what those they are saying to Paul here? They are saying, okay, Paul, I think we understand. I think we under, I, I'm in Romans chapter six, verse one, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm. I, they are saying to Paul, and this is, I mean. This is called an ad hominem argument. Paul is precluding what they're saying, but he's saying, well, if you're thinking this, don't think it. But here's what they're thinking. Oh, I got it, Paul. Then if we're saved by grace, apart from any works of the law, then it doesn't matter what I do. So let's go sin it up so that grace can abound more and more. And I've said to you, I've said to you a dozen times, if, if not more, that if the gospel is preached correctly, if the gospel of grace is preached correctly, someone will always respond that your handling of grace has undercut moral living. Now, what I, I don't want you to lose me. I'm, I'm not off on this this trail of, uh, uh, apart from Romans 4. What I'm suggesting to you is that one of the reasons that Paul wrote Romans 4 is because he wanted to make clear in the minds of the already converted Jew who had grasped a hold of grace but had been trained all of his life concerning his performance that because you dragged that into the kingdom with you, 
that there is this confusion among the people of God as we seek to live out and flesh out our relationship to Jesus Christ. I'm thinking that that's one of the things that Paul has in mind here as a pastor as he writes this chapter. Now, so I'm going to use Romans 4 as a springboard to spend several weeks on trying to, how do I say it, properly balance <coughs> grace. No, to properly present grace. The two perversions of grace, one is called antinomianism, which is seen at in cahoots. Oh, grace, then let's go out and drink it up and, you know, embarrass the kingdom. That's, that's one of the perversions of understanding of grace. That's one. The other is Phariseeism, legalism, a, a very severe judgmentalism. And I say to you that every one of us are a combination of both of them. Do you find yourself from time to time being hard on people in terms of your critiques and your judgments? You're a Pharisee. I say to you, every one of us have a, have a Pharisaic streak in us. And you know what? We get it all. All of us get it honestly, ladies and gentlemen. We were trained. We were trained. We, we acceptance on the basis of performance was how most of us began our lives. And it's hard to shake it off. And so what I thought it would be good, particularly since I have been um, very sensitive to the criticism, um, I thought it would be good. And, by the way, uh, I wanted to spend a whole semester on Romans 4. So if I you know, fill in about another eight weeks in there, we might can stretch it out to the whole semester. Um, but I, I think it would be good for us to pause and find out what grace has to say concerning Christian experience and Christian living. Now that I'm born again into the kingdom, how do people who live by grace live? Burn down cathedrals? Get drunk at in cahoots? Well, that's what I want to try to sort out in the, in the, the coming weeks. And I'm, I, I'm suggesting that I got my idea by trying to understand what was going on in, in Romans 4 from Paul. Hope you understand where we're headed. That's what we'll resume next week. Let's pray. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will help me to give a balanced, biblical, doctrinally sound presentation of how people who love grace live. How people who have been overcome by this matchless, limitless thing called grace, how it is that we go on to live our lives in a way that honors Jesus. We ask for your guidance as every step of the way, and that you will give me clarity of thought and presentation, and that your people will prosper greatly. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.